Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you for listening. In the last episode of our series on the French expedition to Egypt, we saw the aftermath of two critical battles in the early campaign, the Battle of the Pyramids and the Battle of the Nile. The Battle of the Pyramids saw the French occupy the Egyptian capital of Cairo, and put them in a position to exert their control over all of Egypt. The Battle of the Nile, on the other hand, saw the decimation of the French fleet by the British Royal Navy. Now facing a blockade, with no way to receive supplies from France, and no way out other than surrender, Napoleon committed to forging an empire of his own in Egypt. He created new governing and legislating institutions. He ordered his men to pacify insurrections in the countryside. Napoleon was eager to gain the trust of the Egyptian people, even to the point where he seriously considered converting to Islam. But the Egyptian people did not take very kindly to his pandering. In October 1798, a series of firmans, or decrees, issued by Ottoman Sultan and Caliph Selim III began to circulate throughout Egypt, exhorting his faithful subjects to rebel against the French occupiers. The people of Cairo heard his commands and obeyed. During the ensuing rebellion, Napoleon nearly escaped death at the hands of the Cairene mob. He led his men to suppress the rebellion. The revolt of Cairo may very well have convinced Napoleon that trying to endear himself to the Egyptians was a complete waste of time. He felt the need to move on, to strike out in some direction, lest he lose momentum. But where to go? Would he assist his subordinate general, Louis de Say, in his mission to hunt down the renegade Mamluk leader Murad Bey? Would he try to push all the way to India to link up with his ally, Tipu Sultan? Or would another option soon present itself? Getting caught up in the narrative of the French campaign in Egypt, it might be easy for one to forget that Egypt was technically the sovereign territory of the Ottoman Empire. But, although Ottoman Sultan Selim III issued decrees effectively declaring war on the French, they had remained largely uninvolved in the conflict up to this point. Thus far, the Ottoman Sultan's decrees only had the effect of inciting the Cairene Rebellion, as previously mentioned. For his part, Napoleon believed that the Ottomans were actively refusing to get directly involved in the conflict. He thought that the Sultan's decrees were merely intended to incite rebellion, or perhaps they were just British forgeries. He did not, at least at first, interpret them as the declaration of war that they really were. While Napoleon dealt with the fallout of the Cairo Revolt, an Ottoman fleet was amassing at the island of Rhodes, off the coast of Anatolia with the intention of launching a naval assault at Abukir Bay, just west of the critical port town of Alexandria. Meanwhile, to the northeast in Syria, the Ottoman governor Jezar Pasha had managed to mobilize a force of 60,000 men. Thankfully for us, a lot more is known for certain about Jezar Pasha compared to his compatriots Murad and Ibrahim Bey. Ahmed Pasha was a mercenary, born in Bosnia sometime in the 1720s or 30s. As a young man, he traveled to Egypt and became a hitman for a local Mamluk Bey. He quickly gained a reputation for cruelty, and, because of this, he earned the epithet by which he is known to history, Al-Jazar, or The Butcher. Following a complicated series of events that I won't attempt to explain here, Jazar managed to become the governor of the city of Acre, in modern-day Israel. Thanks to his loyalty to the Ottomans and his competent administration, the Sublime Port continually increased his authority over the surrounding region, to the point where he effectively became the governor of the entirety of Ottoman Syria, 
a region that corresponds not only to the modern country of Syria, but also Palestine, Israel, Jordan, and Lebanon. Thanks to his position as governor of Syria, Jazar Pasha was one of the most powerful men in the Ottoman Empire during this period. The butcher's penchant for cruelty had been attested to by none other than the Baron de Tot, one of those French nobles who had traveled to the region in the mid-18th century. The Baron went so far as to claim that Jazar had a number of Christian prisoners buried alive in a wall for his own sadistic pleasure. In spite of this reputation, Napoleon sent envoys to Jazar Pasha in August of 1798, bearing his standard assurances that he was an ally of the Ottoman Sultan and of Islam and whatnot, and entreating him to maintain his neutrality. However, Jazar proved more loyal to his Ottoman overlords than Napoleon expected him to be, and when the call to war came down from the Ottoman capital of Constantinople, Jazar immediately sought to gather his forces and march into Egypt to dislodge the faithless and duplicitous French. By January of 1799, Jazar's army had reached as far as El Arish, a city on the northern coast of the Sinai Peninsula. About midway from his stronghold of Acre and the French stronghold of Cairo, Napoleon could no longer afford to ignore the threat that Jezar and his army posed. In typical Bonaparte fashion, he decided to go on the offensive. He would launch a campaign into Syria, in the hopes that defeating Jezar Pasha would force the Ottomans to seek a peace on his terms. While the prospect of Egypt being invaded was indeed a motivating factor for the new Syrian campaign, it is likely another bit of news influenced Napoleon's decision to bring his Middle Eastern war to a decisive end. War had broken out in Europe once again. Once more, a coalition of hostile monarchies had formed to combat the French Republic, at this point consisting of Russia, Britain, Austria, Naples, and, of course, the Ottoman Empire. On November 29, 1798, coalition forces retook Rome from the French. France would soon have to defend itself once again from the combined forces of Europe. A new sense of urgency dawned on Napoleon to take the Ottomans out of the war and cement French gains in the east. On February 5, 1799, the first French forces left Cairo, heading northeast. The army numbered only 13,000 regular soldiers. The rest of Napoleon's initial force of 25,000 had to stay behind in Egypt to defend against the inevitable Ottoman assault at Abu Kir, and to hunt down Murad Bey in Upper Egypt. While his numbers had been whittled down by casualties, Napoleon hoped that, once he arrived in Syria, he could incite the local non-Muslim populations there to rebel against Ottoman authority, and that they would bolster his forces. Napoleon seems to have learned his lesson in the debacle that was the march to Cairo. He attempted to have his army provisioned better. His soldiers were accompanied by upwards of 6,000 camels and pack mules. However, problems soon began to arise. The lighter uniforms issued to the soldiers for use in the desert were inappropriate for the winter in the Sinai Peninsula, where, due to the mountainous climate, the temperature regularly dips below freezing. Plans were further interrupted when the French vanguard divisions, commanded by Generals Clobert and Rainier, arrived at El Arish to find that the fortress there had been heavily reinforced by Jezar Pasha. Outnumbered, they had no choice but to lay siege to the fortress. It was predicted that El Arish would be taken relatively quickly, and that the men could resupply there. The French quickly used up the few provisions they brought along with them during the siege, and soon they resorted to eating their mounts. One anecdote from this time recalls one officer awaking in the morning to find his men eating his own horse. 
Meanwhile, the garrison at El Arish was continually resupplied by sea, and they taunted the Frenchmen camped outside with the smells of their cooking. Napoleon and the remainder of the army arrived three days into the siege. Eager to capture the fortress and continue on with the campaign, Napoleon ordered the fortress to be bombarded. When the initial bombardment of the light artillery failed, Napoleon ordered sappers to plant explosives at the base of the tower. With their fortifications now greatly reduced, the commander of the garrison made the decision to surrender. Napoleon gave these men a choice, march across the desert all the way to Baghdad, join his ranks, or be killed. Many of those who made the choice to join the French deserted at their first opportunity. Napoleon left a small contingent of soldiers at El Arish and continued north into Palestine. The soldiers continued to suffer from the inhospitable weather, lack of supplies, and various exotic illnesses. Despite all this, a certain excitement abounded as the army crossed from the mountains of Sinai into the plains of Gaza in early March. As one soldier recalled, quote, The countryside is more beautiful than we had expected. The citrus trees, the olive groves, the uneven terrain are exactly like Languedoc, a region in southern France. I experienced, without a doubt, the same happiness as the Israelites, arriving at last in the promised land. End quote. The army stayed briefly in the town of Ramallah, from which all of the Muslim inhabitants had fled in advance of the French army. At this point, Napoleon had fallen behind schedule. Jezar Pasha and the bulk of his army had managed to retreat back to Acre, and Napoleon was impatient to reach them. Entirely bypassing the holy city of Jerusalem, Napoleon opted to maneuver along the coast to reach Acre. Standing in his way was the city of Jaffa, modern-day Tel Aviv. The city stood atop a hill, protected by high walls and defended by a sizable Ottoman garrison. For three days straight, Jaffa was bombarded by French artillery. On the third day, March 7th, Napoleon sent an emissary into the city to negotiate terms with the commander of the garrison. The emissary was almost immediately executed, and his head was placed on a spike and displayed from the city walls. Napoleon was understandably irate. He ordered a direct assault on the city. At his command, French soldiers charged into a breach in the city walls, suffering heavy casualties, but nevertheless pushing forward into the city. These men had been given a sizable amount of alcohol to bolster their spirits before battle, a practice that was not uncommon throughout history. Their intoxicated state and the rage at the unjust execution of their emissary led them to engage in an orgy of slaughter once within the city walls. One French soldier who was present for the massacre wrote of it, quote, There was a terrible carnage. Men, women, and children were put to the bayonet. The massacre did not cease, even when the drummer sounded the order to assemble. It was a frightening spectacle to see so many innocent victims mixed up in this carnage, their dying cries ringing out in the streets. All around us was the spectacle of death. The French soldiers, in their fury, massacred everyone they could find, Old people, children, Christians, Turks, any in human form were the victims of their fury. End quote. The massacre continued on well into the next morning before Napoleon finally attempted to put a stop to it. He sent two of his aides de camp, Crossier and Beauharnais, to restore order. They found 4,000 Ottoman soldiers who had taken refuge in the citadel at the center of the city. Crossier and Beauharnais offered their reassurances that they would be spared the fate of the city's inhabitants if they surrendered immediately. They agreed to these terms and were then escorted from the citadel by the French soldiers, 
whose bloodlust had been satiated at this point. The 4,000 men now in his custody presented Napoleon with a dilemma. Nearly a fourth of them were formerly of the garrison at El Arish. He did not trust them to go free, lest they all provide support to Jezar Pasha's army at Acre. To have them escorted under arms back to Egypt was not an option either. Napoleon could not spare the men. Nor could he afford to keep them nearby. The army was having troubles acquiring provisions for itself, let alone for 4,000 captives. After reprimanding poor Croissier and Beauharnais for making him shoulder this burden, Napoleon convened a meeting of his generals. There, it was concluded that the logical course of action was to simply have all of the prisoners executed. Over the course of the next four days, 4,000 prisoners were brought in large groups to the beach, placed between a firing squad and the sea. As they were subjected to volleys of musket fire, some prisoners managed to swim out of range. The soldiers then laid down their arms and baited the prisoners to return to shore. Upon doing so, they too were shot. As if it were divine retribution for this bloodbath, the plague soon made its way through the French ranks. Yes, that plague. The bubonic plague. While the plague pandemic ended in Europe sometime in the mid to late 1300s, the disease itself had still not been fully eradicated, even to this day. Throughout the late medieval and early modern periods, cities would occasionally fall victim to another outbreak of the plague. This was especially true throughout the Ottoman Empire, where there are records attesting to outbreaks of plague in at least one major city every year up until 1850. In 1791, an especially deadly outbreak of the plague occurred in Egypt, claiming 300,000 victims. In the years since then, the plague had more or less become an accepted fact of life in the region, coming and going with the seasons, much like influenza in the modern day. While it is possible that the French patient Zero contracted the plague in Cairo or some other Egyptian city, unconfirmed reports suggest that the defenders of Jaffa launched the bodies of plague victims over the walls of the city during the siege. Whatever the case, during the next week, over 400 French soldiers were stricken by the plague. The doctors attempted to withhold the diagnosis from the general public, but the symptoms, the growth of painful buboes on the body, were unmistakable. Some soldiers who began to develop symptoms of the plague committed suicide, rather than to suffer the indignities that the disease would visit upon them. To quell the men's terror, Napoleon decided to visit the makeshift hospital where the plague victims were staged. Not only did he speak with his men and offer them his reassurances that they would recover, but he actually assisted in carrying the corpse of a soldier, whose uniform had been torn by the growth of an enormous abscess. The propaganda effect this had on the men was immediate. The men were encouraged by the bravery of their commander-in-chief, and also convinced that perhaps disease was not so bad after all. The incident would later be immortalized by the artist Antoine Jean Gros, in his aptly named painting, Bonaparte Visiting the Plague Victims at Jaffa. Heavily utilizing Renaissance styles, the painting romantically depicts the general reaching out to touch, and perhaps heal, the bubo of a plague victim. The greatly romanticized nature of this painting can be explained by the fact that it was essentially propaganda, commissioned by Napoleon himself in 1804, the year that he was crowned emperor. Before departing from Jaffa, Napoleon also saw to it that divans, similar to that of Cairo, were set up in each of the Syrian towns that he occupied. On March 13th, the French set out for Acre, arriving there on the 17th. Napoleon set up his headquarters on the slopes of Mount Carmel and ordered the men to prepare for a siege. 
From his vantage point, surveying the harbor, which he presumed to be abandoned, he saw, much to his horror, a sizable British flotilla, commanded by Sir Sidney Smith. Sidney Smith's story itself is rather interesting and merits a brief retelling here. Born in London in 1764, Smith enlisted in the Royal Navy at the age of 13 and briefly saw action during the American Revolutionary War. For his actions during the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, Smith was made lieutenant of the HMS Alcides, despite only being 19 years old at the time. Following the conclusion of that war, Smith went off to join the Royal Swedish Navy. He served with distinction at the Battle of Svenskund, where the Swedish annihilated the Russian Baltic fleet. For his actions at this battle, he was knighted by the King of Sweden, Gustav III. When the French Revolutionary Wars broke out in 1792, Smith rejoined the British Royal Navy. Coincidentally enough, Smith was present at the Siege of Toulon, where Napoleon first won his fame as a military commander. Smith then spent some time working to sabotage French naval operations from the ground. He was engaged in such an activity when he was arrested by French authorities in 1796. He was held prisoner in Paris for two years, until some French royalists managed to orchestrate a daring prison break. Once on the outside, Smith was assigned command of the HMS Tiger by Horatio Nelson, with orders to assist the Ottomans in defeating the French army that was stranded there in the east. Which brings us about to where we were in the narrative. Napoleon was panicked at the sight of Sidney Smith's squadron. He dispatched orders to Captain Pierre-Jean Standelet, who was commanding a flotilla transporting heavy siege cannons to Acre, that he should abort his mission and turn around as soon as possible, before the British squadron could intercept him. But it was too late. Captain Standelet sailed directly into the trap. Napoleon looked on in trepidation as the British ships captured the transports with his heavy artillery. Despite this loss, Napoleon was not disheartened. He ordered replacements for his lost artillery to be brought to him over land from Alexandria. Besides, he must have reasoned, if the artillery he had on hand could break down the walls of El Arish and Jaffa, the same could be done at Acre. While the city's fortifications were strong, they dated back to the time of the Crusades, and they were falling apart in places. Napoleon regarded this all as merely a setback. Perhaps it would take them longer than just the two weeks they had planned for them to capture Acre. Napoleon had a series of trenches dug around the fortress, and he had his light artillery aimed towards the walls. On March 28th, the French began to fire on the fortress. The defenders responded in kind, using the heavy cannon seized from the French against them. Their effect was devastating. During lulls in the cannon fire, the defenders mockingly yelled over the ramparts, quote, Sultan Selim, boom, boom, boom. General Bonaparte, pew, pew, pew. End quote. To add insult upon insult, the commander of the seized artillery was one Antoine Le Picard de Philippot. Philippot and Napoleon were roughly the same age, and they had actually attended the same military school, where they were bitter rivals, even as adolescents. Following the outbreak of the French Revolution, Philippot fought with the Royalist Army of the Condé during the War of the First Coalition. It was Philippot that had managed to arrange Sidney Smith's prison breakout, and he had accompanied him to Egypt. Philippot had managed to convince Jezar Pasha to allow him to organize the defense of Acre, despite his hatred of the French. And, with Napoleon's captured cannons in tow, the citadel would be even more of a challenge to take. However, after sustained French fire, 
a breach was created in one of the towers. Napoleon quickly ordered his men to charge into the breach, but they were soon repulsed. The defenders of Acre knew the fate of the defenders of Java, and they were determined to not share in it. The French were soon forced to retreat to their trenches. As the siege of Acre dragged on, Ottoman reinforcements numbering nearly 37,000 men were advancing on his position from Damascus. In the first days of April, Napoleon dispatched two cavalry generals to scout the location due east of him. On April 8th, the division under General Jean Androche Junot encountered the enemy vanguard and repulsed them easily. Napoleon dispatched a larger force under General Colbert to bring the reinforcing army to battle. After a few skirmishes ended decisively in the favor of the French, Colbert was now confident that he could quickly put an end to this diversion and return to Acre, where his men were needed most. Having learned that the Ottoman forces were encamped at the base of Mount Tabor, Kleber took it upon himself to attack them there, under the cover of night, and scatter them. However, Kleber's forces did not arrive at the enemy camp until 6 a.m. on April 16th, and the advantage of surprise was lost. Kleber had his 1,500 men form up in infantry squares to defend against the incoming onslaught of 25,000 enemy cavalrymen. For the next 10 hours, Kleber's forces were able to hold out against wave after wave of Ottoman attacks. By 6 p.m., however, supplies were beginning to run low. Just as Kleber was planning to beat a tactical retreat, the shot of a cannon was heard to the south of them. A division under Napoleon himself had arrived to save the day. Meanwhile, reinforcing cavalry outflanked the Ottomans and charged into the middle of their camp, ransacking everything as they went. The Ottomans assumed that they were surrounded, and the panicked remnants of the army of Damascus turned around and fled into the countryside. The Battle of Mount Tabor was a significant victory for the French, especially seeing as how they had been initially outnumbered by 14 to 1. Against these odds, the Ottoman reinforcements were defeated, and the French position outside Acre was secured. The army spent the next two nights in the nearby town of Nazareth, a childhood home of Jesus Christ. The local Christian population greeted them with jubilation, celebrating their victories with hymns of praise. The largely dechristianized French soldiers treated this holy site with irreverence. A group of men burst into laughter while a local priest explained the biblical significance of the town. Another soldier buried his freshly severed finger in the ground nearby, declaring, quote, Look, no matter where I am when I die, a part of me will always be in the Holy Land. End quote. Napoleon and the rest of the army returned to Acre after two days. Thus far, the siege had been an uneventful artillery duel, punctuated by occasional sorties that had little effect on either side's position. After a month of facing constant artillery barrages and no less than seven failed assaults on the city, French losses were beginning to mount. One night, General Cavarelli du Falga, while walking through the trenches, began to lose his balance and placed his arm over the side to stabilize himself. A cannonball nearly immediately struck his arm and shattered it into pieces. Caffarelli was taken to a nearby field hospital, where his arm was amputated successfully. Just as it looked like he might survive, the wound became infected with gangrene. On the night of April 27th, Napoleon asked Borien as to the state of his friend. Borien replied that the situation was looking rather dire. As a sort of secular sacrament of last rites, the dying general asked Borien to read the preface of Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws to him. He fell unconscious soon after. By the time Napoleon was able to visit his friend, 
he had already died. The new heavy artillery arrived at the beginning of May. Napoleon immediately put it to work and had the fortress bombarded heavily. On the night of May 9th, an ill omen appeared on the horizon. Another Ottoman flotilla had arrived to reinforce the city. If Acre was to be captured, it had to be now, before the reinforcements were able to disembark. It was now or never. The morning of May 10th, the final French attack commenced. General Colbert's men would lead the charge through the largest breach in the fortifications, to be reinforced by General Bond's division. Almost 200 men had managed to break into the city when Ottoman soldiers poured out of a smaller breach in the walls and cut them off from the rest of the army. The men inside the city were faced by a numerically superior force and were soon overwhelmed. The shock of the flanking maneuver by the Ottomans threw the French tactics into disarray. It is certain that half the army perished during this assault, one eyewitness wrote. General Bonn himself was killed in the course of action, and Napoleon was forced to call off the attack. While the order to retreat would not be issued for another week, it was clear that the French were in no position to sustain the siege any longer. Half the French army was dead, wounded, or afflicted by plague. Napoleon's offensive operation into Syria had failed spectacularly, and the army would soon have to undergo the arduous journey back to Egypt. Before giving the order to retreat, Napoleon issued a bizarre proclamation to his soldiers, the latter half of which reads, quote, Having captured 40 guns and taken 6,000 prisoners and reducing to rubble the fortifications of Gaza, Jaffa, Haifa, and Acre, we shall return to Egypt. I must return because it is now the time of year that hostile landings can be expected. Just a few days ago, you were on the point of taking Jazar Pasha captive in his palace. But now, the capture of Acre is not worth wasting time over. The brave men we may have lost here are needed elsewhere for more important endeavors. End quote. The sick and wounded men of the Army of the Orient presented a real logistical problem. Pack animals were in short supply, but the French could not leave their wounded behind to fall back into the hands of the Turks. It is reported, though not confirmed, that Napoleon proposed administering lethal doses of opium to those who were too wounded to walk, but he was rebuffed by the doctors. As the French retreated across the Syrian countryside, they engaged in scorched-earth tactics, putting villages and fields to the torch, and destroying the fortifications of Jaffa and all the other cities that they had occupied. The retreat was slow. The depleted ranks of the Army of the Orient did not arrive back in Cairo until June 14th. There, they were greeted by the misinformed inhabitants as conquering heroes. Napoleon was presented by one of the sheiks of the city with a magnificent grey Arabian stallion, which soon became his favorite horse, which he would later name Marengo. Of these festivities, historian J. Christopher Harold wrote, quote, Everyone taking part in the show played his role remarkably well. However, no one was deceived by it. End quote. Napoleon's claim that the army had to return to Egypt to defend against hostile landings had not been a complete fabrication. One month after the army's return to Cairo, the other Ottoman army, a force 18,000 strong, had landed on the Abukir Peninsula. Napoleon wasted no time in moving against them, and his division reached the Ottoman position in the early morning of July 25th. The first line of Ottoman defenders was caught off guard and was easily scattered. The second line was far more prepared, and the French were forced to make a tactical retreat. 
while some of the Ottoman defenders began to break ranks, a young cavalry general named Joachim Murat saw an opportunity and led a cavalry charge right through the enemy lines. The charge was so successful that Murat soon found himself in the tent of the Ottoman general, Mustafa Pasha. Murat ordered that Mustafa Pasha surrender, but the old gray-haired general ran towards him and fired his pistol at him. Murat was struck in the jaw, but the injury was not too serious. Two of his men entered the tent soon afterwards and took the old Pasha into custody. Publicly, Napoleon continued to act as though he and the French were in Egypt to stay, but privately, he knew that the Egyptian expedition had failed. If the loss of the fleet at the Nile had been the beginning of the end, the failure to take Acre had definitively sealed its fate. It would seem to most people, with the benefit of retrospect, that Napoleon's oriental ambitions were simply too grandiose to succeed, but Napoleon himself was never convinced of this. Six years after the fact, on the eve of the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon was quoted as saying the following, quote, If I had been able to take Acre, I would have put on a turban. I would have made my soldiers wear big Turkish trousers. I would have made them into a sacred battalion, my immortals. I would have finished the war against the Turks with Arabic, Greek, and Armenian troops at my side. Instead of a battle in Moravia, I would have won a battle at Isis. I would have made myself emperor of the East and returned to Paris via Constantinople. End quote. Napoleon placed the blame for his defeat squarely on Sir Sidney Smith, writing in his memoirs, quote, That man made me lose my destiny. End quote. Around this time, Napoleon received an update from Europe, and the situation there was not good. The armies of the Second Coalition had dealt the French significant defeats in Germany and Italy, reversing many of the gains that the French had made in the war of the First Coalition. The Fatherland needed Napoleon to return now more than ever, and so he began to secretly lay plans for his triumphant return to Europe. And that is where I will leave the narrative for now. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks for the epilogue to our series on the French expedition to Egypt, as we discuss the final months of the French occupation, as well as what Napoleon gets up to back in Europe at the same time. Afterwards, we'll discuss at length the long-reaching effects the French campaign had, not only on the course of Egyptian history, but also of the history of art and science as well. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, you can always reach me on Twitter and Facebook, links to which can be found in this episode's description. Until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.